0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to
1: the ERLC podcast. This week we'll hear from a panel of pastors.
0: Anytime the common good of humanity is under attack, and human flourishing is being oppressed, then I believe that's a red flag that we need to be addressing and and inject God's voice. That's the beauty that God has privileged us with as, as pastoral leaders, is that we are a representation of his voice. And if we're handling the scriptures well, we're actually communicating to people in real time in their heart language what God has already declared to be true.
1: The upcoming presidential election, and its unprecedented nature, has many pastors wondering what their responsibility is when it comes to politics. At our 2015 National Conference, Philip Bethencourt moderated a panel of pastors, which included J.D. Greer, Jimmy Scroggins, Matt Carter, and D.A. Horton, asking them how and if a church should engage politically. We hope you enjoy this message.
2: We want to help you Think about how churches should engage politically, or if they should engage politically. So we want to get very practical here in terms of what that looks like on the local church level. And in order to do that, we have some special guests with us. On the far side is Matt Carter. He's the preaching pastor at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas. Next to him is Jimmy Scroggins, who's the pastor of the family church down in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, next to him is D.A. Horton, who's just getting ready to launch a new church plant in the LA area. And then you just met James JD Greer, the lead pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And JD, and, uh, I'm going to begin with you. So it seems to me when we look at churches and politics, Oftentimes, they'll go to one of two extremes. Either they'll be very engaged politically, extremely active, or they'll avoid it altogether. Do you have any sense on why it is that churches tend to go to one of those two extremes? And what would you suggest is a better way for churches to approach the issue?
1: You know, as in a lot of things in uh, Christian life and ministry, wisdom is found in a balance of two extremes. And typically, um, and again, this is not unique to Christians. I think most people are like this. We tend to go through one reality and we overreact to that and sometimes go to an opposite. Um, I think certainly uh, we know uh, many of us, uh, in fact, all of us, I think, grew up in an era where there was a reaction to, um, you know, what's... Uh, I don't want to paint everything with the same brush, but you know the the kind of the 1980s. This is how Christians feel about things down to minutia, and we're the moral majority, and almost trying to you know take over power structures. And we saw that not only not only was it not effective in um, actually. Uh, blessing the 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 nation. We also saw it corrupt the church, and probably the greater damage was done to the you know the church itself as it wedded itself to power. And so I think the reaction to that is 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 so well we're just going to keep our hands you know out of it. And I know that that it's I wish because I'm a guy who likes things written down and I like a little checklist and you know it's like I, I was a math uh, major in college for a while and I like everything in a formula and spit out the right answer. Um, and uh, there's a lot of questions. It just comes down to. Um, to prudence. Knowing when is it time to connect that dot? Um, it, we should we should preach against militarism, for example. When is it time to then say, and because we're against militarism, this war right here is wrong. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, wrestled with that. And he felt guilty every time he tried to connect it, but he felt like he had to do it. The American um, Constitution, the, the founders, many of them wrestled with the same thing. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's listening to the spirit of God, trying to be shaped by wisdom and avoiding extremes and, and, and kind of keeping just
2: things in tension and in balance. Now, Jimmy, you inherited or went to a church that has a long legacy in Florida and is a very prominent church in the area, And uh, versus these other guys who are planting churches or have planted churches. What, what were the dynamics that you inherited, or what have you seen in other pastors that have gone into churches who have a legacy of either being politically engaged or not politically engaged, and how did you help to uh, chart a new course once you got there in that regard?
3: Well, our church does have a history of being engaged, particularly with Republican, evangelical politics. And I don't think that that's all bad. I think there's some great things about that. We've all benefited, um, in our churches from materials that have been produced by great organizations from, uh, voter guides at different times that were very helpful. But, uh, there is a brand of what I would, you know, Fox News Republicanism. There's a generation of that, that we have to, um, bring some balance to, as JD was saying. So, Um, To me, the biggest imperative is how do we talk about these things in a helpful way, in a biblical way that applies the gospel directly to the issues instead of marrying ourselves to a party or to some kind of political brand? Because what we want to make sure is that we are not a tool of any politician or of any party or of any government entity, because the truth is our citizenship, as important as it is, um, is not in this world. We, like Abraham, are looking for a better city and a better country. And uh, as we think about these things and teach these things to our people, um, I think they can probably understand better ways to think about how we engage in political issues
1: instead of just uh, kind of towing some kind of a of a party line. You know, when a pastor speaks with the same passion, the same priority, the same confidence about an issue like um, global warming or um, the, the best stance toward immigration he speaks with that same amount of passion as he does when he talks about issues of the gospel and the lordship of Christ, then no matter what you say, that communicates something. And it means that if you disagree with me on here, you must also disagree with me here. And you end up hurting the gospel significantly because you've tied its credibility to the credibility on things that you might be right about,
2: but are not nearly as important. Well, Matt, I'd love to hear from you. So you you planted the church a little over a decade ago in the state capital of Texas, right in the shadow of the Capitol building. What I might remind you is the largest state Capitol building in the country. As a native Texan, uh, and and you you had a low profile early on in the younger years of your church, but it's grown significantly. And over time, it's reached an influence in the city, and then the state has blossomed where more and more the media and people in the government and culture have looked to you. How have y'all navigated that journey? What does that look like as you've thought through where do we weigh in and how?
4: Well, I think I was one of those pastors, J.D., that, that swung the pendulum way too far to the non-political side for years and years in my ministry. Um, I grew up in a little small Baptist church in East Texas that um, was extremely conservative. And so the pastor didn't think twice about speaking about, politicians are speaking negatively about certain current events that were happening um, of more liberal nature. So I grew up in that, and then I went to a school, uh, Texas A&M University, where you also went, went to school, and... Um, and went to a, a an awesome church, but again, incredibly conservative student base there, and so the pastor was all, this was during the Clinton years, and so during the Monica Lewinsky scandal and all that, the pastor almost every single week would stand up and make comment about it and kind of talk against that sort of thing, which was great. It's kind of like throwing red meat to, to wolves. Uh, it was a rallying cry for, for the kind of conservative base of the church, but it felt like every Sunday became a current events event, and so I, just in my youth, I thought, man, when I play in a church, I'm just going to go in the opposite direction. And my philosophy was, I'm going to preach the Bible. I'm going to, I'm going to teach the principles of the gospel and the principles of scripture. And then hopefully people res- will respond, um, in, in the public sector, according to those principles. But then I realized pretty quickly, Austin is a very different town than college station, Texas, where <laughs> A&M is. And, um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of millennials go to my church and they all voted for Barack Obama. They, they would probably, a lot of them identify as liberals. And so, um, it's very difficult, but I'm reevaluating all that now. And so, especially in light of the way that Christians are, are being challenged on our religious liberties, uh, same-sex marriage, I, I'm, I'm really taking another look at our stance on how we need to engage, um, this culture in Austin, which again is, is not completely conservative, but it's about half and half. And so, um, Hopefully you guys can answer some of those questions today.
2: (laughs) Well, let's let's look to Jimmy for uh, one thought on this because you're there in Florida in a swing state. Politics is very central because of how pivotal Florida is. You got television ads all the time. So there's a sense in which part of what it looks like to disciple your people is to help to disciple them on how to engage the public square, how to think about things politically. But how do you do that in a way that's helpful but where it doesn't create the political uh, political component to be too central in their discipleship, what does that look like for you?
3: Well, I just think again, reiterating the fact that the gospel and the, that our that our that our loyalty and our fealty is to Christ um, first and foremost. And even new Christians, regardless of what you know, because most of the new Christians that come to our church or people who aren't Christians that are coming to our church, those people are all Democrats. Just almost all of them. They're almost all voting a certain way. They're going to be a lot more liberal than I am on any issue, but being able to say, okay, so our citizenship is primarily in heaven and our primary loyalty is to Christ our identification with Christ and his gospel. Well, then let the Holy spirit begin to work some of that stuff out. But as we do it, part of our teaching is to do what St. Paul did, which is to exercise the stewardship of our citizenship in this country. And it is foolishness. And I think negligence, I think sinful for us to completely ignore and act as if we have no standing as citizens of the United States of America. So our votes do count, and our voice does matter, and we still live in a place where to just shut that down in the name of, you know, evangelistic uh, expediency is a huge mistake and an error, and it's a fail—it's a failure to exercise stewardship.
2: Uh, DA, you've worked with urban churches all over the country in your role with the North American Mission Board, and you're getting ready to plant a church in L.A., what are some of the things that you're noticing amongst black and Hispanic evangelicals and others in urban areas in terms of their trend lines for political engagement? And what are some of the things that encourage you about that? What are the, some of the things that trouble you related to that?
0: I think um, I think looking at from a minority context in the urban environment, historically, uh, from some of our elders in the community, it's been established, vote Democrat, they're for us. And you really don't question it. Um, but then at the reality, now that we're getting older and we look at some of the issues, those of us who hold to a biblical worldview, juxtaposed to those who don't, um, the conversations that I'm seeing and that I'm having basically are dealing with the matters of social justice that don't go away when you turn the TV off. Um, you know, Individuals that would talk about political rallies and activism on social media, they can easily step away from the pain when they turn the TV off or turn their Twitter off or turn their phone off. For us, that's the rhythm of our life. And so I was more probable to hear political engagement from Tupac Shakur than I was from a pastor. We talk politics more in a barbershop than in a Bible study. And so it's that reality of people have a political view, but then when you inject mass incarceration, when you see people with felonies, it's the new Jim Crow. They can't get out and mobilize to vote, so you don't see a lot of changes in our constituencies, and you don't see councilmen, aldermen, mayoral elections representative of the constituencies that make up the majority of the populace in those environments. And so now what I'm seeing, and you see the National Review, the Atlantic, you see the New Yorker, after the 2012 election, now Hispanics and blacks are sexy because the GOP needs our votes. And so it's that reality that they want to court us. They want to, hey, man, we need you. We need, we need some color lines blurred, if you will. We need some people in positions to run in these races, serve in these uh, capacities. But when you look at that at the end of the day, it's still a lot of the people grassroots level are not paying attention. And the reason they're not paying attention is because there's no trust there. So there's this high level of walls of self-preservation that the public square does not affect the dope dealer. The public square does not affect the single mom who only has ramen noodles in her shelf to feed her kids because she has to do for self. And so it's that reality of now, this is where the church should be leading conversations with harmonizing public square conversations with the biblical worldview. And so what we need to do is employ believers, both from pastoral to leadership to laity to engage in conversations where people are doing life from the barbershop, the beauty salon, the grocery store, wherever they are, and inject to them a biblical perspective on how God cares for us and how we can love our neighbor. And like you said, even though we're looking towards the city of God, like what Augustine said, it is the church's responsibility to put on display the appetizer or the foretaste of the city of God while we're living in the broken, fractured city of man. And when when churches will do that and not take blue or red lines but unpack biblical perspective through expository preaching, here's where God stands, and then put the responsibility on the constituents to follow up and perform due diligence to select their candidates, I think we'll see change.
2: Well, you raise an interesting point. You talk about expository preaching, and I think all of y'all are expository preachers. Many of you here in the audience are watching the live stream are. And one of the questions I just want to throw out to the group is, I, when I talk to pastors about how do we engage politics or not in our church setting, oftentimes one of the biggest questions for them is how do I do it without se- making it seem like it's artificial or forced? You know, if I'm, if I'm preaching through uh, a book of the Bible, And there's a major political issue or cultural issue that I need to weigh in on. It's like, okay, can I make a bridge to an application point related to this? Or how can I weave that in as a sermon illustration without it seeming too forced? So what are some ways that churches can think through how to integrate this with it being consistent with their ministry strategy rather than feeling artificial or forced?
0: I think personally, um expositing the text and performing excellent exegesis. If the text does not deal with the issue, then don't force it in. Now you're eisegeting and you're going against the principles of healthy teaching for the people of God. But when there is the word of God that is addressing issues that are pertinent and relatable and applicable to the people that are hearing the preached word of God, then we plow right through and we express the words of Christ or the words of God because they're inspired, they're infallible, they're timeless. I was privileged to be preaching at Charleston Southern for their chapel. This was the day after Walter Scott blew up right in North Charleston. And I didn't switch anything that I wasn't going to talk about. I was already going to talk about the words of Christ out of Matthew chapter 5. And the Walter Scott situation went perfectly into that as a living narrative of what the words of Christ mean. I said, it's it's radical righteousness that we respond with. It's not rioting and it's not remaining silent, but it is pronouncing the words of Christ and living out the implications of the gospel in communities that are hurting and fractured so we can be the tangible expression of God's love. But I didn't have to tack it on. It was just natural exposition and good exegetical work that now I could use as a bridge to parallel to an applicable reality.
1: Let me give a complementary perspective to that. You know, the, um, the scriptures, when you preach through them, are remarkably resilient in their ability to apply across different cultures and you find that as you go through them uh, things that not only you know that your people are struggling with but that you don't know that they're struggling with get brought up at the same time you know a pastor has two worlds in context he's got this one here and he's got the world of the scripture and not only is the world that the scripture was written in governmentally different than the world we live in today which means sometimes there has to be a bridge Um, it also means that there are sometimes that the text you're preaching on are not really dealing with the question that's at hand right now. I mean, if you're, you know, preaching in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1860s, I don't think you wait until the very clear passages on the equality of the races before you talk about the evil of slavery. Um, if I'm preaching to a group of people who are broken, um, by pain, I'm going to deal with that pain regardless of the text that we're dealing with, and sometimes I will choose that text. So I think there is, you know, one hand you have the confidence in the scriptures and you're making the, the, the bridge. At the other time, you just, it, there's a sensitivity because a pastor is not primarily just an exegete of scripture. That's what a commentary does. A pastor is a leader of people, and he leads people from the counsel of the word of God. And so I think we gotta keep both of those
2: balanced. That's very helpful. And, uh, Jimmy, let, let's think through some practical things. And I want to start with you, but we may get some of the other of the of the panel involved. So earlier this year, there was a lot of controversy because in the city of Houston, there was a subpoena issued to several pastors who preached about a particular ordinance that was passed protecting sexual orientation and gender identity laws uh, a, as part of the the legal environment there in Houston. And there was a big outcry about that saying that's an overreach by the government. But one of the questions that it raised more broadly is what are the do's and don'ts for pastors and churches when it comes to how how they involve themselves in the public square and in political life. And one of the ways that that shows up in churches like yours in Florida in a swing state is you may have an elected official uh, or a somebody who's in the midst of a campaign who wants to come through West Palm Beach and make a stop by your church. So let's imagine one of the 2016 presidential candidates, for example, reached out to your church and said, hey, we'd love to have our candidate come. Would you let him bring a greeting from the pulpit? Uh, would you let him pray? Would you recognize him? What would you feel comfortable with uh, if an elected official or somebody who is in a campaign situation were to have that request or make that opportunity?
3: Well, I'll say, first of all, that in, in our context, that happens all the time, and... Um, what we try to teach our people is the Bible tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. And I think there is a, a rightful honor to be given to people who've devoted their life to public service, even if a lot of their ideas are different from my ideas, even if their, their worldview is different from my worldview. I want to honor the fact that they've devoted their life to public service. I think that's a good thing. So if, if an elected official is present in one of our services, minimally, if I'm aware of it, I'll normally acknowledge that they are here we're glad that they are here, and um, we certainly want to pray for them. And sometimes I might bring them up on the platform, and I may pray for them because the Bible instructs us to do that. So I'm not doing something weird. I'm doing specifically what the Bible tells churches and pastors to do. Um, whether or not we'll let them bring a greeting, uh, we, we never have let them bring a greeting from the platform on a Sunday morning. I'm not going to. I would never say never if it was a Christian brother, or a Christian sister and they were devoted to Christ, and we had a relationship with them, I would never say absolutely not, but probably not. We have some other venues where we have let candidates speak, and we've done some things similar to what Dr. Moore did at the conference here where we've had them come up and talk about faith and talk about politics, and we get to control the agenda and let them address issues that are important to us. But I'll also say we're bipartisan in this. So it's not a matter of hey, if if a if a if, if a person from this party came, would you allow them to come? But you wouldn't allow this party to come? No, I would acknowledge, I would acknowledge people from either party, um, from any position of governmental authority. And I am grateful for people who are running for office or people who are actually executing public office. I think it's it's an important value.
2: Would it have any effect for you depending on what their views are? Like if you didn't agree with them on some of the core issues, if it was somebody that affirmed same-sex marriage? It was pro choice. Would you still be willing to pray for them in your congregational setting?
3: I would absolutely be willing to pray for anyone who's who's in a governmental position or who's seeking a governmental position. And I'm proud to do it and I want to teach my people to do it because it's what the Bible tells us to do. Um
1: I would not in First Timothy two, when Paul tells people to pray for kings and those in authority, there's not a whole lot of those people we would have said were good rulers. Yeah,
3: none of them. So so (laughs) so so uh but I also think um You know, I would never allow someone to speak from the the platform on a Sunday morning who's not a publicly identified, committed Christian. Okay, so so that would absolutely be out of bounds. I would never let someone on our platform speak who, who wasn't. So that would be one of the
0: factors that would weigh in. I know one of the practices that we employed, and we actually got it from Mark Dever at Capitol Hill, is that uh, we had pastoral prayers throughout the, the course of our corporate gathering, and included in that would be prayers and petitions for our leaders from the mayors to our aldermen to the president of the United States. Congress and people that advise them as well that are behind the scenes. So I think that also as pastors, that's something we can lead our people into is getting into that posture of prayer where we are following the mandate of scripture, not just on special occasion, but we make it a part of our corporate prayer life to uphold those who are in legislative authority in our nation.
2: So uh, this is not a question of can pastors or churches do this in terms of their ability or is it okay for them to do it but from a wisdom perspective should they do it uh, do you all ever think that there's a suitable time for a pastor to publicly endorse a candidate for an office
4: I'll give you one story when I was a youth pastor back in the 90s at a at a church uh, near Houston we had uh, the pastor was really good friends with a guy that was running for uh, state rep and he publicly endorsed him and uh from the pulpit and unbeknownst to him, that the guy that he was running against also went to the church and ended up, uh, you know, making a meeting with the guy and saying, look, I'm leaving the church because you didn't endorse me. And so that kind of stuck in in my head as a, as a young guy. And so I think we just have to be careful, especially with candidates specifically. Um, if an elected official were to come to my church, I'm, I'm with, um, with Jimmy, I would absolutely pray for them regardless of their uh, affiliation. But when you bring up a candidate and endorse them, I think you're um, that's just right for disunity within the body of Christ. And so we typically avoid it in Austin.
1: Well, uh, hey, I think clearly there's a time where that might be necessary, but I cannot remember one in my lifetime where it was of that degree. I mean, but there have been situations throughout history where I don't see how you couldn't. You know, I brought up you know, Bonhoeffer. I, I'm just also very aware that despite how, committed you can feel in something 30 years from now it may not look as stark as it it, it did you know whether john nixon um uh, richard nixon versus john f kennedy you know it may not be as stark as it as it is in the days sure
2: do any of your churches distribute voter guides or recommend a particular voter guide in your state to make available we do not
1: no Although we recommend certain sites yep. that would link to that, so it's almost two degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. We say here's a site that will help you think Christianly about various issues, and on there, that there's usually things that they can access.
2: Yeah, uh, Da, I want to get your perspective coming back to uh, the min- the minority community, those who are. Hispanic and black evangelicals. There can be oftentimes in the media an oversimplification of what's important to them politically. So with, when it comes to African Americans, it's racial reconciliation, and that's the root issue, or, or economic justice. Uh, when it comes to Hispanics, it's oftentimes simplified to immigration. Is, is it really that simple, or is that an oversimplification? And how, how do, how do those in minority and in urban context evaluate those things that are personally important to them from an ethnicity standpoint while balancing that with what the Bible has to say about about a whole variety of issues?
0: So that's, uh, it's, it's challenging to answer uh, because me being one individual trying to answer on behalf of millions of people is a misrepresentation to millions of people because I'm one individual. Um, but when I look at the reality of what you asked, yes, it is an oversimplification. Uh, when you look in communities that are poor, uh, that are food deserts, that have uh, lackluster at best educational systems, uh, unemployment rates, mass incarceration—like what I talked about—those are other issues that are pertinent in the lives of citizens in those communities that are neglected um, and often misrepresented. And so when you see that, um, you begin to recognize the fact that, yeah, people are not, who are Hispanic are not just concerned only with one issue. It's a multitude, a plethora of issues, but sadly we don't have a lot of voices putting people up on the reality that, Hey, these other 45 things matter. We don't want to be encapsulated to just one specific social ill. And so I think that's where having representation, Uh, that actually is known at the grassroots level and has a chain of communication from the everyday people. If they're out in the environment, if they're in the constituencies that they're serving, dialoguing with people, and they have individuals that can remain in communication with them that is grassroots, then we can see a chain basically of strong communication of the needs of the needy being communicated to the people in power that can be the voice and the face and the representation for them. And often that doesn't happen in the African American community, in the Hispanic community, the Middle Eastern community. you will, and, uh, and people of those ethnicities. If I could add something from a, uh, a white pastor from a traditionally or historically
1: white church, in the last five years, our churches, um, just at a pretty dramatic rate, experienced a diversification, of particularly black, Hispanic, and also um, a large amount of uh, an Asian population. And has created a reality in the church, politically speaking, that is, at the same time, simultaneously, it's very scary. And it also seems very helpful. It's scary because I feel like sometimes it's a powder keg, especially as you near elections. And within small groups are people that cannot comprehend not voting Republican and people who cannot comprehend not voting Democrat. And if I could just use oversimplification, let's say that some of our white Christians cannot comprehend voting Democrat, and they look at their black brothers and sisters and say what I referred to briefly up there, I don't see how you cannot think that abortion and gay marriage is not a big deal these are defining issues and they will um and and, and the black brothers and sisters say i don't see how you can not be sensitive to you know the reality that we face with with economic justice and you know the other side is like but you know the the, the politicians that you're electing are the ones that are, are actually keeping you down and it is and it's explosive so it's very dangerous but with the right coaching, and it's, it's, it's a full-time job to do this, it's actually become really helpful because I feel like for, for the white brothers and sisters, there's been an enlargement of vision of, I've never seen this through your eyes. And then also on the other side, there is a... Yeah, I've only defined this in the limited deeds of my community. And it's helpful to see that, you know, this perspective, maybe you're not just trying to keep me in poverty by electing someone who's a limited small government. Maybe you really believe that's the best way for economic prosperity for all. And I think that's going to create a marvelous new, in, not just in the church, but in, in politics as black and white and Hispanic come together, if they do so with humility and love to learn from and listen to each other, the product on that end will be better
0: than when it's only been you know formed in isolation. I want to tack one more thing on, uh, just looking numerically at the reality of what's taken place and using Ferguson as a case study, because we're about to approach the one year anniversary of Mike Brown. You look at the preceding elections from 2013. I think it was 11% of the people that were registered voters came out, uh, in 2014, it was one more percentile above that. But then after Mike Brown, the first city election after his death, it mobilized over 30% of the voting population. And now you have the council is equally 50% Anglo, 50% African American. And so in that context, it took a crisis moment to arouse the people to say, the power is in our hands. But then at the same time, you have to trickle through the reality That because people have felonies on their records, because of various circumstances in their lives, they're prohibited from ever casting their vote. So it's the reality of meeting that ignorance with education to people. This is how the political system works. This is how it can work in your ward, in your council, in your district. And these are the individuals that you can choose to represent you so that you can no longer cry foul because you don't have representation. You do bear the right privilege and responsibility to cast your ballot for the candidate that you feel articulates and represents your worldview best. And we're seeing that now starting to mobilize people.
2: Well, let's stay focused on the local level, Matt. Uh, you've written a book called For the City, and you, your church has, has a remarkable network of nonprofits that work to serve the community, uh, especially the least of these in your community to help them. But you're in the state capitol. You have people in your church that are elected officials that are involved in the government. You have people serving on school boards. Uh, a lot of this conference is focused on federal and national level political conversations what what does it look like for a church in its local and community setting uh, to come alongside of the way that they're serving their community through acts of service, through uh, nonprofit work, uh, through the way that they're working in their community? How does a church come alongside that and also seek to help their people engage on the political level at the local and state uh, level?
4: Yeah, one of the things we've tried to do as a church is is being incredibly active in serving the city. And I could bore us with a lot of stories, but whether that's uh, engaging in local school districts to help them pass their state exams, to mentoring students and getting involved with programs, to um, one of the largest um, food banks in the nation is on our campus, one of our campuses. And so we have, over the last decade, loved and served our city. We've come alongside elective officials of both parties to love and serve them. And I'm gonna tell you the positive aspect of that, Philip, it's that when, when we do have to stand up in the pulpit and, and take a stand against something like same sex marriage and you have to say, Hey, um, we need you to know congregation that what God has defined, we can't redefine. And, and when you have to make difficult statements like that, I think typically you'd expect a huge backlash from the city, but because we've engaged over the decade in loving them and serving them over and over and over again, and, and, and the city has seen the good, um, come through our church for their city than there have been, in my experience, much more apt to listen to us yeah. and, and say, why are these guys saying that instead of just immediately attacking us, which I think has been fantastic.
1: Yeah, we One of our goals as a church is to have people in government say, we may not believe everything those crazy people at the Summit Church believe, but thank God they're here because if not, we'd have to raise everybody's taxes because of the way we just, like you said, Matt, it's, it's you you get a certain credibility when there's love that cannot be disputed
2: on display one of the practical questions that i'm sure i'm sure many pastors wrestle with is when does a national event or a cultural moment hit a threshold where you feel like you need to weigh into it from the pulpit so for example how many of you when the supreme court ruling on marriage came out did something intentional to address it that following sunday did all y'all do that anybody not do that
4: We did it through our, um, specifically to our membership and to our leaders, but we didn't address it publicly from the stage.
2: Have any of y'all weighed in on the Planned Parenthood video since they've been released? Okay. So help us think from a principle standpoint. You know, those are somewhat obvious. They're very clear. Like, this is a moment that needs to be addressed. But what would be the principle or the framework that you would help our pastors to think through about when something reaches that level where it's time to weigh in on it?
3: I think J.D. addressed it in his talk a few minutes ago. I mean, where the Bible is very clear, then we have a mandate from the Scripture to be clear and to be as forceful as the Bible is. When something's a little fuzzier, a little more blurrier, you know, then then I think we have a responsibility not to be stronger on an issue than, than the Scriptures are. Um, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to gender, when it comes to family structure— when it comes to marriage, I mean, the Bible is clear. It's, it's really not debatable what the Bible teaches. So we either stand with the scriptures and address this, sure we don't. Same thing when it comes to the principle of the high value that God places on life. Because the Bible is so clear, then we have to be, we have to be clear on these things. That's why those are really, really easy ones for me. Mm.
0: So, Any other thoughts on that? I, I would, I would say, uh, in agreement. And also, uh, anytime the common good of humanity is under attack and human flourishing is being oppressed, then I believe that's a red flag that we need to be addressing and, and inject God's voice. That's the beauty that God has privileged us with as, as pastoral leaders is that we are a representation of his voice. And if we're handling the scriptures well, we're actually communicating to people in real time in their heart language what God has already declared to be true. There
1: are um, I'm very guarded about the pulpit itself and know that there are some things that I can say that are true. And that I might be relatively sure are true, but that I just choose not to put into our pulpit because I know that the moment they touch the pulpit, people cannot filter them and say, you know, and put them in the right categories. And so there are certain things that we try to teach on a, on a secondary level. Um, you know, I've, for example, there's a great missions book right now. Um, yeah, when helping hurts. And it's basically the idea of there are certain principles that really God gives us in his word about why certain economic systems work and then certain ones that are more totalitarian or, you know, all built, why they don't work. I think that arises right out of a Christian worldview and I would be, you know, my opinion would be very, God, I'm very careful about t- carrying that into the pulpit and saying, therefore, vote for this candidate because he or she feels this way about taxation and about regulation and all that kind of stuff. Because I know that, A, not only could I be wrong, B, I'm just not sure that that everybody has the filters to be able to to, to do that. So I'm like, I'm not going to put that in the pulpit. I'm going to put that in, like Matt said, a letter to the um I probably wouldn't do it as a letter to the membership either. But, you know, kind of things where just point people toward resources where they can grow in those things.
0: I think, Can I inject one more thing? I, I, one thing I really make a plea to pastors to have is a greater balance in, uh, in, in what we're vocal about as far as social issues and things of that nature. And, and let me just give a couple of quick snapshots. For example, um, the realities of the the videos that go viral, police brutality, things of that nature that a lot of people in the urban communities were very vocal about, marching protesting, things of that nature, there was a lot of pushback from evangelicals uh, that are non-minority that were like, you don't know all the facts, you don't know everything yet, you need to stop rushing to judgment. But then at the same time, when the Supreme Court Justice made their ruling, evangelicals were up in arms like, oh my God, they're going to take our taxes in, we're going to lose our building next Sunday. And it's like, you're not practicing what you're preaching. You got to hold off and chill before you start going over the cliff with your assumptions, the same thing you told us. But at the same time, I didn't see a lot of brothers of color advocating the reality for the nuclear family we see in Scripture. And so that's why I'm telling people we have to be balanced. If we go 100 miles an hour on one issue, we're neglecting 99 other pertinent issues. And so that's why we have to be surrounded with biblical and wise counsel of individuals that can shepherd us, help us not to tweet too fast, but at the same time, Understand that if we're silent on something that's pertinent we need to speak about, then our silence is actually endorsing the wrong perspective. So that's where it does take prayerful consideration, wise counsel, and men in your life like the men up here with me that can say, hey, it's wise. I may not agree with you, but I can see the wisdom in what you're doing. Or, hey, I would counsel you to pull back on that so that we can see greater balance so that no issue goes without a biblical voice calling out God's heart on that issue. And I I want to agree with J.D. too on protecting the pulpit because I get it.
3: Emails, I'm sure all of you guys, emails, calls weekly saying, why didn't you address X news story from the in, in They want to preach on week. Israel every week. Yeah, well, well <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from, I mean, but, but I mean, you think of what's happened in the last eight weeks. I mean, it's one story after another. It's a, it's a shooting. It's, it's, it's a, it's an issue of race. It's a, it's some political issue. It's the Iran nuclear deal. It's, you know, whatever. How can you not, how can you possibly preach a whole sermon and not even bring that up And I get it every single week. So we're not going to be able to speak to every issue with the same amount of force. And we're going to have to choose by the wisdom of the spirit and by the, by the, you know, kind of, kind of the, the community decision making of our eldership, of our pastors. What is the spirit leading us to talk about? And uh, I think the spirit, the spirit's control and the spirit's leadership in what we address is vital.
4: I think the filter that I use is uh, the scripture that says that we're called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry mm. and so if there's an issue that's happening that is affecting enough people in the culture that our, our, our congregation needs to be equipped to address, then that's the filter that I use. Yep. For example, the Ferguson shooting, it, it became such um, a, a, an all-encompassing cultural issue that our Christians, our white Christians, were being forced to talk about it with their African-American brothers. And so it's something we felt like we needed to address because we needed to equip them in order to do that in a biblical and godly way.
1: Our, uh, our elders pushed me to actually make a public statement about the amendment in North Carolina to the Constitution. And the reasoning was, and since then, I've really seen the marriage amendment, the right? marriage amendment. sorry, yeah. Um, since then, I've seen the wisdom, and I think how the Spirit of God was moving them, and that's the subject of interpretation, but um, it was our people need to learn to think Christianly about the institution of marriage, not only what it is, but what it means for society and they said they told me they said pastor right now everybody else is defining that narrative for them and because our people listen to you we feel like and even though there is going to be some fallout from actually connecting the dot we feel like you need to get into the conversation and help people like matt saying this is the narrative and we need to help them think christianly about it and now you know a couple years later i i think that was a very wise move because it may not have done a whole lot of good out there but it really helped our people you know grow up in the faith
2: I want to finish with a practical question to you, Jimmy. How do you have time to keep up with what's going on in the news and the culture and politics with all the other responsibility of pastoring? I imagine there are many pastors watching this live or on the live stream who just don't feel like they can keep up with all the current events and be able to know what to filter, what to answer, what to address, what not to when they have all these other pastoral responsibilities going on. This is where you on.
1: promote the ERLC blog. Yeah, I, knew, I knew where I
3: was going. The <laughs> ERLC website is the main thing that I look at every single day now i honestly i am very grateful i am very grateful yeah. for the rlc and the
1: resources that they provide and other people um the world and everything in it that, that's a good one that uh, there's some of these you know yeah. the rlc and some others yeah. that-
3: and i and and there's there's a lot of places like that that you can read that do a lot of the kind of weeding through all the news stories for you and i think that's very helpful so that's how you do it
2: well y'all join me in thanking them for this contribution
0: Thank you for joining us on the ERLC
1: podcast. To subscribe to the podcast and find more information about Christianity and politics, visit ERLC.com.